Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tales from Told. I'm Dwayne Davidson, your host, and I'm here with a good special guest, uh, the second time talking about the subject. Preston, want to introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thank you, Preston, for joining me again as we talk about this continuing saga. This is a continuation of our episode called uh, Trouble and Told. And it was basically about the McDevitt and Manderville families is what the first episode was about. Uh, just kind of recap folks about what that episode was all about. Like I said, the Hatfields and McCoys of the Tolt area, evidently, where this, these folks called the Mandervilles and uh, McDevitts and uh, two brothers-in-law uh, basically getting into a fight over the treatment of uh, Maggie McDevitt, or at this point in time, Maggie Manderville. Uh, and it led to a, uh, a knifing and what probably was one of the very first murders that happened in the town of Tolt. And it was kind of a big deal. I was able to get a book written by a family member about this called uh, Skeletons in My Closet. And it was written by a descendant of this family, of the Manderville family. And she didn't make, make any kind of excuses or apologies. It was basically... Acknowledgement that this family, uh, you know, this was a skeleton in their closet. Pretty interesting book. I was uh, uh, pleased to be able to obtain a, the copy of it to read from the Tolt Historical Society. Like to bring that uh, author of that on as a guest on my program. I've extended an offer to her, and hopefully we'll hear from her, and she can come on and explain her side of this uh, 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 of the situation. But anyway. To kind of uh, resolve that, that story and bring closure to it, I went to the uh, state archives, the regional archives in Bellevue at Bellevue College to try to research it a little bit more and put a little bit of closure to this and took me on a different, <laughs> a different tack where I found out some other information that was more interesting uh, about uh, things that happened a previous uh, decade to when this murder uh, happened. So anyway, to kind of just bring a little bit of closure to the original topic, Maggie McDevitt or Manderville tragically died at a pretty young age. Manderville, George Manderville, went to prison, but received a particularly short sentence, if I recall, Preston, and he actually got out early. Yeah, he was sentenced to uh, to 10 years, and he got out after like four. Pretty short sentence, and some people allege that it was because the Mandervilles were related to Dexter Horton, and those of us that know our local history know that Dexter Horton was a prominent banker in the Seattle area. Um, I don't think that that was particularly the case. It's never been proven. It was just alleged by some. More probable it was because there was a feeling at the time of the conviction that 
this was premeditated murder and subsequent events or information. I think it was a, another trial, right? Of a sister murder or something of one of the other individuals involved mm -hmm. that had the knife revealed that this probably wasn't premeditated. Right. And I think that that probably what led to this uh, lighter sentence. Do you, wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely agree. Yeah. So he, Mandeville got out and, and uh, previous in the previous recording, uh, in our previous episode, I alluded to the fact that uh, even Mrs. McDevitt wrote a letter on his behalf to get out of prison early. That proved not to be the case uh, in reading the book that I just mentioned, um, Skeletons Are in My Closet. It reveals that the her concern and the reason why she wrote a letter is she was concerned about early release and she was concerned about the safety of her and uh, uh, and her family. And that was the reason uh, she wasn't writing on his behalf. Nevertheless, he got out of prison and established himself in Eastern Washington and lived a, a life free of crime, as far as I could tell, uh, for the rest of his life. And that was basically the end of the story. But it wasn't the end of the entire story because that's when I learned that uh, something else really interesting happened. But to, like I said, to research this, I went to the state regional archives and I just want to give just a quick shout out to those folks and the good work that they do. Um, uh, our regional archives are located in different parts of the state. They're a division of the Secretary of State's office. And the one I'm visiting has the King County records. It's the one at Bellevue College and they are just a wonderful group of people that work there. Always very accommodating to my request to see documents. It's just a fun place to go. And I just want to give a shout out to them for uh, the, um, uh, the good work that they do. And so when I was there, I became very aware that there has been uh, quite a history of the McDevitt family and uh, the run-ins with the law uh, in the Tolt area. Um, but put things in just proper context here. Let's just talk a little bit about where we're talking about. All this basically happened in the proximity of Griffin Creek, uh, south of Carnation, uh, almost right at the spot of, or it was at this, uh, basically we're talking about the area, right around Full Circle Farms that uh, is, exists out there today. The McDevitts were clear, their, their homestead was a small one, clear down at the river. And the Dolan family, uh, the new family that is, we're gonna be talking about that was party to these court cases was just to the north of them. And um, the little incident happened. There has been several, there were several different uh, run-ins with the law. One involved that they had a burn pile of uh, some brush that they were clearing. Uh, fire got away from them. Some people thought it was intentional. Other people said that, that was not the case, but it actually caught uh, the, and caused some damage to the little schoolhouse, the Pleasant Hill School that existed right uh, in that area. Um, 
This particular incident involved a pig, though. And the folks at the regional library, I just want to make mention of them. They found this all pretty interesting. We found that so much was written about a pig, and it involved so many different legal documents that they said that uh, this was like, it reminded them of the other pig war. And they even kind of dubbed it that, the Tolk Pig War. And <laughs> for those of you that know your history, you know they were referring to the actual pig war of uh, 1859 was uh, up in the San Juan Islands when we were still establishing uh, basically between the United States and United Kingdom about where the uh, boundary of present day Canada in the United States was going to be. And just for just in summary, it was basically about whether the San Juan Islands was going to be part of present day Canada or part of the United States. Fortunately for us, it was determined that San Juan Island was going to be part of the United States and that, that settled it. But that pig war, where it never did have a casualty, was all over shooting of a pig that really got hostilities uh, between the two parts. There was an English camp and an American camp up on the San Juan Island. And I found it kind of interesting that the owner of the pig's name was Griffin. Uh, but there, and here we had Griffin Crick all these layers. And I think that the original charge was pretty close to 20 bucks, even though this was even a, a previous time. I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, um, that the uh, pig's owner, whose name was uh, uh, Griffin, and that, uh, you know, things got real hostile real quick. And the Americans uh, sent, a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a troop or a a, a, a regiment, a regiment of people, and that was uh, led by uh, a person by the name of uh, Captain George Pickett, who just a few short years later was going to make another name for himself in Pickett's uh, uh, Pickett's uh, uh, charge, right? Or, right. Um, in the Civil War, so, and then of course they basically threw their hands up and didn't know how to resolve the issue. And they got a German emperor, Wilhelm, uh, basically uh, decided things for them, which I thought was pretty interesting. They had to go to arbitration and the, and the uh, Germans somehow were able to settle this uh, little dispute for us. But anyway, this was our own little pig war. And it basically uh, happened when Mr. Dolan accused Mr. McDevitt of shooting his pig. And I found this pretty interesting because they referred to the pig in various uh, uh, legal documents. I know you've read a couple of them numerous times as the large white sow with black spots on this right side. You just want to be very specific. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about a specific pig, a large white sow with black spots on its right side. And I guess that a hogs were quite a, a um, prized commodity back in those days because um, he wanted twenty dollars, which uh, for which seemed like a, the fine was twenty dollars, which seems like that was a lot of money. And in, in, uh, when was this? This is about eighteen eighty nine or something like that, right? Right. That's a lot of money. It seems like, mm -hmm. but uh, but anyway, uh, he got uh, a charge with this, and he wasn't very happy about it. So a couple of different times, he uh, evidently appealed or 
we'll, we'll talk about that just for a moment. But again, I just want to kind of say uh, something a little bit uh, interesting about back to the setting that this all happened. I uh, found it really interesting that there were so many uh, Irish uh, in this area and that this area was uh, something I didn't know until researching this is how heavily our area was first populated with Irish, many of which didn't stay around. They basically, um, what, what would you call it? They acquired their homestead and did what was necessary to get their homestead deed, which I think was like some betterment to the property, um, uh, a house and a barn and a few other things. And then as soon as they got deed to it, they sold it. But these names, uh, uh, Preston, listen to this, uh, McDevitt, Dolan, McGuire, O'Leary, O'Neill, Griffin, Donnelly. This was the names of the people that homesteaded between Carnation and Fall City. Right. That yeah. sounds like just outside of Dublin, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, the Irish potato famine would have happened about 40 years beforehand. It uh, happened between 1845 and 1851. And the population of Ireland at the time was 8.5 million. And in fact, today, as estimated by the United Nations, the population of Ireland is just a little over 5 million. Wow. Yeah, so the population still hasn't recovered. The Irish potato famine, we're, we're still seeing the effects of it today. Wow, that is really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how many of them came to the state? So, well, uh, we will uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk about this little dilemma of this uh, pig and all the trouble that ensued in uh, our second segment of Tales from Tolt. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your Valley community radio station. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened-to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinary talent Hal Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in, 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. Hi, everybody. This is Jay Fisk, host of Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley. We're the show that's on every week, and we talk about nonprofits that help all of us who live, work, and play here in the fabulous Snoqualmie Valley. You can catch us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, and then we do an encore presentation on Monday at 6.30 p.m. That's 5.30 Sunday evening and 6.30 on Monday for Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and host of Food Sleuth Radio, the show that helps us think beyond our plates, connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. If you care about the food you eat, then join me on Sundays at 3 p.m. on Valley 104.9 FM for Food Sleuth Radio. Please join Interim City Manager Bob Jean and me, Mayor Kimless, for Carnation Currents. Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays 5.30 p.m., and Fridays 6 p.m. on Valley Radio 104.9 FM for the latest updates of Carnation. Welcome back. Talking to Preston here about the McDevitts and the area just south of uh, Carnation, Washington. 
of Griffin Creek where a pig was shot that uh, uh, Mr. Dolan wasn't very happy about. He alleged that it was his pig. I found some of the testimony of this large white pig with black spots on his right side to be pretty interesting because McDevitt took the stand and basically get testimony that he traded hay for the pig, but the pig kept running back to its original owner. And so uh, <laughs> that uh, he didn't steal it at all. They had practically everybody that lived in the area to give testimony to this particular trial. And all of them basically gave different versions of it. But it did seem like most of them were citing about the fact that they felt that Mr. McDevitt was guilty of uh, taking the pig. There's even some suggestion that there may have even happened a second time, which I thought that was uh, kind of uh, uh, interesting. Um, it did seem like this was a contentious issue between a justice of the peace and Mr. McDevitt. And because we're all about learning local history and we've all heard about justice of the peace, old movies depict people getting married by the justice of the peace. I know that it's got a lot of history uh, in the States. All of our original colonies had justice of the peace, but Washington State doesn't have this position anymore. What happened, Preston? So the justice of the peace was, um, to quote Article 4, Section 10 of the, uh, of the Washington State Constitution, the justice of the peace um, had original jurisdiction in cases where the demand uh, or value of the property in controversy was less than $300 um, or such greater sum and did not exceed $3,000 or as otherwise determined by law. The, uh, the justice of the peace, um, they really had, th their main role was to deal with misdemeanors, traffic offenses, and minor civil suits. But we don't we don't see them really today. It's uh, sort of the whole uh, role of the Justice of the Peace has really deteriorated over time. But uh, probably be safe to say that it's been like blended into the district court, right? Right. It's been absorbed by the district court system that we have today. Mm -hmm. But very very needed at the time because things were so rural, limited population. So they basically everybody elected one person to kind of keep the peace, right? Right, right. And that was basically, so it was kind of an all-in-one, a um, low-level officer that helped provide peace and civility at the local level, right? Right, right. Yeah. Well, this just of the peace that was uh, assigned, I can't remember his name right at the time. Oh, his name was uh, James Harris. James Harris. I don't think him and McDevitt liked each other. Oh, I, I don't get that impression at all, no. <laughs> I think we could almost make that a safe assumption here 170 years later, that because there were cases that was brought and investigated by the Justice Peace about the school burning, about one, maybe two pigs being stolen. There was also one that I saw about cruelty to an animal that he brought charges against, I don't know all the particulars about that particular issue. Um, the This justice seemed to have some issues with Mr. McDevitt, who died, by the way, rather early and left his wife to raise his large family. Uh, uh, and we know that things didn't turn out all that well when uh, uh, we were talking about previously about the murder that happened. Uh, of the one boy, but um, two different conflicting articles about what happened to Mr. McDevitt. 
One newspaper article said that he was killed in a, a carriage accident involving a runaway team of horses. Other ones said he died in the epidemic uh, at home. So quite different contrasting stories there. Maybe he's affected by aliens. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been because, yeah, there's conflicting things about what, I, what happened to him. But anyway, the justice kind of threw the book at him, right? Oh yeah, it says here that he that he had to pay a fine of uh, of sixty of sixty dollars and seventy eight cents, and he was sentenced to one hundred and five days of hard labor, uh, until or until the costs were paid, whichever came first. Wow, one hundred and five days of hard labor. Yeah, that's not that's not a short amount of time. No, <laughs> it's pretty expensive pork, I would think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we got we got a hold of uh, some uh, uh, things from the archives that uh, legal documents that suggest that maybe there possibly was an issue about this sentence, right? Right, right. Yeah, we found a um, a writ of habeas corpus. Now, habeas corpus is a Latin word meaning "you shall bring the body," i.e., uh, to court. And the writ of habeas corpus was issued by Mr. McDevitt's attorneys, and um, among among many things. They say that a the justice of the peace didn't have the authority to hand out such a such a sentence. So constitutionally, what you we talked about when you described it in the first part, they have very limited jurisdiction, right? As you would again, because a lot of times they're just volunteer elected, right, by people, and so there wasn't really a sophisticated position, and so they're alleging that uh, uh, this particular justice of the peace might have just. Went a little bit too far, right? Yeah, went a little rogue. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, as far as we know, uh, he, he basically got released at that point, right? Right, right. Um, after the writ of habeas corpus was um, was issued by Mr. McDevitt's attorneys, and I found this interesting in going down the, the document. First of all, his attorneys had atrocious handwriting. Just, <laughs> just want to throw that out there. But... Um, so after the writ was issued, um, the Honorable Thomas Burke ordered that Mr. McDevitt be brought from the sheriff's office to stand trial at district court. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, first of all, I just want to make a comment that I actually think Preston does an excellent job of reading these old documents because he's reading them a lot better than I can. And I was brought up learning how to read a cursive uh, writing. And to me, I thought people were better at their handwriting than they were. Some of those are really hard to understand. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if they were being, if they're attempting some type of a shorthand or what was going on there. But uh, so basically he, uh, this was yet another time where he didn't really have to pay the entire consequences of his, uh, of his actions, but uh, hopefully he learned his lesson from it. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he might have got off kind of easy, but the court costs and stuff were, uh, they seem like Trump changed to us now, but basically court costs of uh, uh, $60, Preston, you know, about how much would that be in today's dollars? Um, $60 in uh, 1889 would be $1,875.03. Wow. So they weren't messing around. I mean, that that's... Those are hefty costs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to pay that. <laughs> no, especially when things were really 
the primary crops that were uh, around here at this time, uh, the McDevitts were known to go and pick hops. They didn't have hops in the, themselves, but uh, like I said, they just had a small farm that had some pigs on it. But he traveled away and like many of the farmers in the area, uh, hops, this is before dairy farming, really took uh, hold in the Snoqualmie Valley and one of the main cash crops was hop farming. And you see that, especially in this area, I mean, there was a hop growing shed that still exists to this day, just outside of Fall City. And uh, hop drying uh, sheds were um, located uh, in different places in the valley. Like I said, there's one surviving one. And many of our original farms and original uh, uh, homesteads were devoted to the, uh, uh, the production of hops, uh, which, existed up until the time when they had some major blight uh, come uh, about and they uh, then were replaced by daring as more people with that skill set came and uh, populated in the valley. So that was hard money to come by. It took a few pigs to, to, uh, to raise that amount of money. And the McDevitts were, they, they scrounged by later on. I read a will that uh, when Mrs. McDevitt passed on and uh, there wasn't a lot of property there. It was kind of a, it was a hard life. We didn't really think about it. Uh, you know, the, what they were faced with to, to scratch a living out was really meager opportunities, meager uh, amount of personal holdings to, it was a rough life. Yeah. And you could almost have a little bit of compassion. They had a very large family and who knows, maybe they, took this pig out of desperation that they needed something to eat as far as I know. Um, there was a, uh, something I've also found interesting is that the relationship that McDevitt also had a contentious uh, relationship with his landlord, whose name was Webster, um, H E, I think it was Webster. Um, that was a property owner in the Snoqualmie Valley. Uh, we mentioned him in a couple of episodes ago that he settled down in the uh, novelty area and actually sold property to the Pickerings and other people that we know better in that era, uh, in that area. Uh, but he also evidently owned the land that was uh, next to McDevitt and McDevitt sharecropped uh, with, with him. And that led to a lot of the confusion and, and, uh, problems that were with uh, um, that existed out there is whenever you're entitled to half of the crop, that's almost a recipe for disaster because, you know, uh, um, who's monitoring that? There's always going to be a little bit of suspicion about whether you're getting the short of the stake. You know what I mean? Right. When you have a sharecropping thing, it didn't work in the South all that well and it didn't work wherever you went to. It's an easy way to start up a farm and start a business of just basically telling somebody, hey, have a go at it, farm my land, just give me half of your crop. It doesn't turn out to be as easy as it sounds. But uh, right, right. It's all in the honor system. <laughs> it's it's all on the honor system. And and there were problems between uh Webster and uh, and uh, Mr. McDevitt also. And there was lots of evidence in different documents about that. So, so that basically closes the book on 
the research that we did on uh, this interesting family, uh, it was an interesting family indeed. And a very, I wanted for full disclosure, in a very, very convoluted, distant way, I'm actually even related to the McDevitts by marriage. So uh, I have a right to be able to talk about him to a certain degree. Oh, is that <laughs> how that works? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. But uh, it's an interesting story. And one that uh, has been fun to kind of explore, especially when I know that this all occurred right next to where I grew up. So this has uh, been fun. Preston, thank you for joining me again today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, until next week, folks, please tune in again while we continue to explore the history of this wonderful place we call the Snoqualmie Valley. 